So we're going through a series, um, and what we are trying to do this next few months is to shift our mindsets from church on Sunday to church in the community. And we're hearing how the church is operating in the community. Every week we're hearing these five minutes of how the church is doing church out there. So I want to talk to you today about essential services. It's a word that's been thrown around during our lockdown, right? Essential services. And I want to look at, go back to the early church and look at what is essential for Christianity. What is essential for the church, all right? If you, you think about the early church, um, some say they never met in buildings. They only met in homes. Well, that's not true. They actually, if you look at Acts chapter 2, they met in the temple and they also met in homes. In other words, they needed a large place. I mean, the first day the church was born, 3,000 members, you know? And so they needed a big place. And so uh, the temple, of course, was available. And most probably they met at the Gentile uh, court. Um, and uh, mainly because the Jews would not have allowed them to be in the main uh, main court, and so they would have been there. You know, remember the place where Jesus cleaned up, all right, and said, "My house shall be the house of prayer." They probably met there, you know, in that court. Um, was it illegal to be a Christian in those days? It was. <coughs> Right? That's true. It was illegal. It started off as an annoyance, and then it's, um, the Jews began to create problems around that. And so the Roman Empire, actually, everywhere uh, throughout the Roman Empire, it became illegal to be known as a Christian. That's why you will know in church history that Christians never really called themselves Christians. They just drew uh, the symbol of a fish. Right? To just let each other know that they were followers of Christ. Mm -hmm. So it was illegal to be a Christian throughout the Roman Empire, right? Until AD 313, when the emperor declared, um, um, well, first of all, the Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan said it was no longer illegal to be a Christian, right? Then 10 years later, the Roman Empire embraced Christianity as the official religion. We all clap our hands and praise God. Actually, it's the worst thing that could ever happen to us as a church. And you know, the thing about uh, when, when Christianity became an official religion of the government, all right, that's when corruption in the church began. Right? Corruption of power, corruption of um, authority, and corruption of our faith and our belief systems. Uh, the sad thing about us in the modern day church today, we trace all our doctrines and our teachings from third century onwards. It's time to go back to the first Amen. century Christianity. Right? Another true thing about the early church, there was only one church. That's why the Roman Catholics are right, and yet they're wrong. <laughs> right? The reason why they're right is, yes, there was only one church. Right? Everywhere you went, the Christian mindset was the church. Right? So it didn't matter where you were, there was only one church. Um, uh, but that church was an oppressed and persecuted church, and didn't have the power to oppress and persecute people. That's the difference about the one church of the early church, all right? 
So, so many things were different in the early church. Um, and if you look at the modern day church today, it's very difficult for us to go back. One of the things we don't want to do is we don't want to go back to that lifestyle. What would you do without the internet? <laughs> what would you do without a car? <laughs> what would you do without... What would I do without curry? <laughs> That's persecution, man. That's persecution right there. Um, so I'm not interested in actually going back to a way of life. What I'm interested in doing today is to pull out the values that they had, the essential values that made church, church in the early church, right? Jesus described the church as salt and light. He said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And that's how he saw the church, right? What's salt, what's light? Agents of change. You put salt in an environment, it changes the environment. When you turn on a light, it changes the environment. Salt and light are agents of change. Jesus saw the church as agents of change. Wherever the church was, right, it will change and transform society. My question to you and me is, have we changed society or has society changed us? So we need to get back to the drawing board this morning. Right? So we were looking at Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 and 43. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. That's the birth of the church. Right? The moment the church was born, the Bible tells us this is what they did. Right? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. So this was the distinct characteristic of the early church. And Luke sets out to tell us these were the four values that they had. These were the essential characteristics of the early church. I'm suggesting this morning that that's all we need. Everything else are bells and whistles. There you go. God saying amen to that. Firstly, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Right? And I put here, that's a newfound, they had a newfound love for God's word. Because they didn't say they devoted themselves to the scriptures. Luke was very clear in saying that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. In other words, they began to see scriptures differently. They began to see, for them at that time, it was the Old Testament. Right? And they began to see the law and the prophets differently in the eyes of the apostles who stayed with Jesus, loved, lived with Jesus for three and a half years. Right? Every day. It was Bible school. Right? They ate with Christ. They lived with Him. They heard His teachings. They saw Him live His teachings out. And so they were influenced the way he read scriptures and the way he applied scriptures. And so now the apostles were teaching them the way to read scriptures afresh and anew. A radical new way of reading and interpreting the scriptures. Influenced by Jesus' life. Influenced by Jesus' teachings. Influenced by Jesus' death, resurrection. Influenced by his ascension, influenced by the coming of the Holy Spirit. All these events in their lives influenced them the way they read the scriptures 
It was fresh, it was new. And if some of these Old Testament prophets that they bring out and connect, before the Holy Spirit, they were reading Joel differently. Now, Peter stands up and reads Joel, and he says, this is it. This is what's happened, right? The, the Spirit of God has come upon us. So they read scriptures afresh, anew, through the eyes of their Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. They were now learning to read scriptures the way the apostles were reading scriptures, right? Filtered, coming through the lenses of Jesus Christ, their Lord. Holy Spirit directed. Let me read you John 14, 26. Jesus said, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. That was what was going on. As they were now reading scriptures, the Holy Spirit was reminding them about what Jesus taught them. Holy Spirit was reminding them how Jesus applied those scriptures in his own life. Right? So it was Holy Spirit directed interpretation. But it was also Holy Spirit directed application. Look at how Paul talks about the scriptures. He says, all scripture, 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Paul was saying, now when we look at scriptures, we learn how to apply it. All right? It corrects us if we are, if we are in the wrong cause. All right? it, it teaches us. It instructs us so that we can live righteous lives. For what? So that we can be complete in Christ. But for what? <laughs> so that we are equipped for every good work. So that when you're walking up the mount and you see somebody and God, the Holy Spirit says, Stop. Talk. Tears flow. As the person is able to sense something precious that's going on in this conversation. All scripture inspires us to shift our lives and to apply it so that we will be complete in every, equipped in every good work. The first thing that we must recover that's essential if we call ourselves the church is a love for the Word of God, a love for scriptures. Not the Old Testament and New Testament, but as a whole, it is the scriptures, the Word of God. Learning to read our scriptures the way the apostles were reading scriptures through the lenses of Jesus Christ. I was having a chat with someone here um, in this very room and talking about how difficult it was the uh, version of the Bible they were reading and I said try another one it doesn't matter what version I'm not a King James version only Christian right whatever version and translation that works for you read it so that you are able to be inspired by the Holy Spirit instructed by the Holy Spirit equipped by the Holy Spirit to do the work God has called us to do we need to recover our love for the Word of God. The second thing they did, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. I put here a newfound love for God's people. Let me read 
um, explain to you. The word fellowship there is the Greek word koinonia. And the word koinonia means partners, to be in partnership. That's what koinonia means. They began to see each other as partners, not just partnering with God, but partnering with one another in this endeavor to transform the world. They were in partnership together. The word includes communion, it includes participation, it includes agreement, it must include unity. See, the Jewish community at that time were very divided, right? Major, three major sects, sects there that just were, went against each other. You know, you had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, and you had, you had the third group, the Essence, but they, we don't see them in Scripture apart from John the Baptist um, group of people. But this is the group that the, the strongest group was the Pharisees. We see them a lot in Scriptures, right? The Pharisees were traditionalists. They were the conservatives, right? Um, and they became very legalistic. Initially, the move was to to preserve the Jewish lifestyle to preserve God's teachings, to preserve the law, to preserve um, the Hebrew language, you know? But slowly, they became legalistic, right? In fact, Jesus was very critical about the Pharisees. He said this about them. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. That was the Pharisees. Then you had the Sadducees, very skeptical rational people, all right? Um, most of the other sects looked at, looked at them as worldly-minded, right? But they were the thinkers. If the Pharisees focused on the doing, they focused on the thinking, all right? And so everything went through the rational mind. And um, then you have the Essenes. They were the mystical folks, right? Ascetics, they lived in, they wanted to live away from everyone else so that they preserve their walk with God. Very much focused on the mystical experiences, feelings, right? Straight away as you look at these three groups, you can think of all the denominations in our, in our Christian uh, life, right? In modern day church today, right? We are divided in those lines as well, you know? Some say, let's just don't don't um, misinterpret the scriptures. Stay true to the scriptures. The others say, yeah, but we have a mind. We need to look at uh, today and modern day society and how do we apply that in today's society. The other one says, don't worry about all that. Let's just feel Jesus, right? And 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 we fight about it. We quarrel about these things. Next thing you know, we've got denominations and then we've got damnations. Are we allowed to say that? <laughs> so you got the traditionalists, all right? Focusing on the doing. What's the danger? Legalism. Then you got the liberals focusing on the thinking. What's the danger? You conform. You start compromising and conforming to the world. Right? Then you have the mystics who focus on feelings and experiences. What's the danger? Shallow and wa wavering faith. But every group, all right? As far as the early church was concerned, right, they went against disunity. They belonged. They all mattered. 
They were partners in this endeavor to reach the lost world, right? Paul addresses this, this tendency to get disunited and to have this party spirit, right? In verse 1 Corinthians 1, 11 to 13, he says, right? There are contentions among you. Now I say this, each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or will you be baptized in the name of Paul? Right? So what he's saying is, it doesn't matter who's bringing the word. It doesn't matter who's doing the teaching. Only one thing matters, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what unites us as a people. Right? So we, we do the same thing today. We are uh, Presbyterian. We are Anglicans. We are Methodists. We are Brethren. We are Baptists. Then we say, no. We are non-denominational. Because <laughs> we are not going to be like you guys, Paul, Paul. No, we are Jesus Christ. And I tell you, that's a, that's a real stench in God's nostrils. <clears throat> the way we treat one another when we are actually all brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a problem. It's a problem that the modern church must address, and address it we will. The early church valued koinonia. They devoted themselves not just to the partnership with God, but to partnership with one another. What's the importance of koinonia, friends? This is it. True Christian fellowship, all right, creates an environment for transformation. They're having fun. True Christian fellowship creates an environment for transformation. I've got two scriptures here. Firstly, 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Can you see the connection John is making between walking in God, right, and fellowshipping with one another? He says, if you're walking in the light, it will be seen in the way you fellowship with one another. And what, is, what happens when you walk in the light and you're fellowshipping with one another, you see the effect of the blood, cleansing blood of Jesus Christ transforms us and cleanses us. There's something about koinonia. There's something about this true fellowship with one another that brings about purifying attributes in our walk with God. The second thing I want to show you is same gentleman, John, 1 John 4, right? He says this, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? This is a tough one, I tell you. Hey, but it's there. Don't blame me, blame John. <laughs> This is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother too. Amen. You see, Christian fellowship, true Christian fellowship refines our intimacy with God. You see, we have to strip away this residue of religious pretense when we approach God. Because he requires us to be in partnership together, to love one another. I say this, right? You know that second of the great commandments, love your neighbor as yourself? If you can't love yourself, you can't love your neighbor. 
In other words, if we don't love ourselves, we can't love the world either. It starts here. The second thing that we must recover is a love for God's people. True koinonia, true partnership, true unity. Not based on our brand names that we have, right? And whoever we call ourselves, but based on this one fact, we are children of God. Thirdly, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, and I put here a newfound love for God's grace. You know when we break bread together, communion, I love the Latin fathers. They are the ones who coined this word, sacramentum, which we use the word sacrament. You know what the meaning of the word sacrament? Invisible sign, a visible sign of an invisible grace. A visible sign of an invisible grace. Think about this. We hold a piece of bread in our hand. We hold a cup of grape juice in our hand. What's going on here? Everyone on the outside will be saying they're just having a very small piece of bread. Alright? You can hardly nourish yourself with that. They have very, very little bit of grape juice. Alright? Depending on how much left in the box. And then we take this. What is happening here? I love C.S. Lewis and how he describes communion. He said, here a hand from the hidden country touches not only my soul, but my body. What he was meaning is, when I stand there and I hold these insignificant symbols, something is happening in my spirit, in my body, and in my soul that's mysterious and hidden. It's the grace of God that the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for me and the body that was broken for me is a gift to me to change my life, to transform me and to make me like Jesus. I have done nothing to deserve this. Every time I hold those emblems, it's a reminder. I have not done nothing to deserve the love of God. I have done nothing to deserve the grace of God. I have done nothing to deserve favor from God. In fact, I can do absolutely nothing to be saved. He did it all. And I hold these emblems that reminds me every day of my life something mysterious is going on in my life that God is transforming me not because of what I'm doing but because of his mere grace love and mercy towards me they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread to always remember this it is by grace and grace alone that we are saved finally they devoted themselves to prayer. And I put here, a newfound love for God's perspective. Because that's what prayer is. Right? 32 times you see the book of Acts mentions prayer. The act of prayer. Every major move that happened in the book of Acts was birthed from prayer. But I want to take you to Paul, Philippians 4, 6-7. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, 
with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasseth all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Here's the Apostle Paul. When he was writing this letter, he was in prison. Deep in the dungeon of his prison, he's writing to us. Get a perspective. Get a God perspective. Pray. And he's saying to them, all right, touching on the deepest emotion that we all feel, anxiety and fear. And he says, prayer will garrison you. Prayer will protect you from your fear and your anxiety. Prayer with a good dose of thanksgiving, he says. That's what you need. Get a perspective of God. And what he says is, it will guard your heart and it will guard your thoughts. We need to recover the importance of prayer. A God perspective. It helps us see from his vantage point what's going on in our circumstances. And it produces the peace that guards our feelings and guards our thoughts. As they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrines and fellowship, in the breaking bread and in prayers, then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. You know what the effects of these four values were? When they valued the scriptures, they valued um, fellowship, they valued communion, they valued prayer. The effects were this, that a healthy fear came upon them. A healthy awe of God came upon them. And they allowed God to have his reign, allowed God to have his way. And out of that came signs and wonders that manifested in all their lives and in their community. And the rest really is history. My friends, my invitation to us as a church, we need to recover these four essentials. Four essentials, the only essentials we need to function as a church. A love for God's word, a love for God's people, a love for God's work of grace, a love for God's perspective through prayer. Everything else are mere add-ons. Let us pray.